Section 5 of A Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner Read for LibriVox.org by Sandra Chapter 2, Part 1 Jones, Janarius Jones, born of whom he knew and cared not, becoming Jones alphabetically, January, through a conjunction of calendar and biology, Janarius, through the perverse conjunction of his own star and the compulsion of food and clothing, Janarius Jones, baggy in grey tweed, being lately a fellow of Latin in a small college, leaned upon a gate of iron grillwork, breathing a levee of green and embryonically starred honeysuckle, watching April busy in a hyacinth bed. Dew was on the grass, and bees broke apple bloom in the morning sun, while swallows were like plucked strings against a pale windy sky. A face regarded him across a suspended trowel and the metal clasps of crossed suspenders made a cheerful glittering. The rector said, Good morning, young man. His shining dome was friendly against an ivy-covered wall, above which the consummate grace of a spire and a gilded cross seemed to arc across motionless young clouds. Janarius Jones, caught in the spire's illusion of slow ruin, murmured, Watch it fall, sir. The sun was full on his young round face. The horticulturist regarded him with benevolent curiosity. Fall. Ah, you see an airplane, he stated. My son was in that service during the war. He became gigantic in black trousers and broken shoes. A beautiful day for flying, he said from beneath his cupped hand. Where do you see it? No, sir, replied Jones. No airplane, sir. I referred in a fit of unpardonable detachment to your spire. It was ever my childish delight to stand beneath the spire while clouds were moving overhead. The illusion of slow falling is perfect. Have you ever experienced this, sir? To be sure I have, though it has been, let me see, more years than I care to remember. But one of my cloth is prone to allow his soul to atrophy in his zeal for the welfare of other souls that that not only do not deserve salvation, but they do not particularly desire it, finished Jones. The rector promptly rebuked him. Sparrows were delirious in ivy, and the rambling façade of the rectory was a dream in jonquils and clipped sward. There should be children here, thought Jones, he said. I must humbly beg your pardon for my flippancy, doctor. I assure you that I, uh, took advantage of the situation without any ulterior motive whatever. I understand that, dear boy. My rebuke was tendered in the same spirit. There are certain conventions which we must observe in this world, one of them being an outward deference to that cloth which I unworthily, perhaps, wear, and I have found this particularly incumbent upon us of the, what shall we say, Integer vitae scelerisque purus, non eget maris iaculus neque arcunec venenates sagitas. Fusque, faretra, began Jones. The rector chimed in. Sive persistis iter aestuosas, sive facturus per inhospitalum causasum felque loac fabulosas, lambite daspes. They concluded in galloping duet and stood in the ensuing silence regarding each other with genial enthusiasm. But come, come, cried the rector. His eyes were pleasant. Shall I let the stranger languish without my gates? 
The grilled iron swung open, and his earthy hand was heavy on Jones's shoulder. Come, let us try the spire. The grass was good. A myriad bees vacillated between clover and apple-bloom, apple-bloom and clover, and from the gothic mass of the church the spire rose, a prayer imperishable in bronze, immaculate in its illusion of slow ruin across motionless young clouds. "'My one sincere parishioner,' murmured the divine. Sunlight was a windy golden plume about his bald head, and Janarius Jones's face was a round mirror before which fawns and nymphs might have wantoned when the world was young. Parishioner, did I say? It is more than that. It is by such as this that man may approach nearest to God. And how few will believe this! How few! How few! He stared unblinking into the sun-filled sky. Drowned in his eyes was a despair long since grown cool and quiet. That is very true, sir, but we of this age believe that he who may be approached informally, without the intercession of an office-boy of some sort, is not worth the approaching. We purchase our salvation as we do our real estate. Our God, continued Jones, need not be compassionate. He need not be very intelligent, but he must have dignity. The rector raised his great dirty hand. Oh, no, you do them injustice. But who has ever found justice in youth or any of those tiresome virtues with which we coddle and cradle our hardening arteries and souls? Only the aging need conventions and laws to aggregate to themselves some of the beauty of this world. Without laws the young would reave us of it, as corsairs of old combed the blue seas. The rector was silent a while. The intermittent shadows of young leaves were bird cries made visible and sparrows in ivy were flecks of sunlight become vocal. The rector continued, Had I the arranging of this world, I would establish a certain point, say, at about the age of thirty, upon reaching which a man would be automatically relegated to a plane where his mind would no longer be troubled with the futile recollection of temptations he had resisted and of beauty he had failed to garner to himself. It is jealousy, I think, which makes us wish to prevent young people doing the things we had not the courage or the opportunity ourselves to accomplish once, and have not the power to do now. Jones, wondering what temptations he'd ever resisted, and then recalling the women he might have seduced and hadn't, said, And then what? What would the people who've been unlucky enough to reach thirty do? On this plane there would be no troubling physical things such as sunlight and space and birds in the trees— but only unimportant things such as physical comfort, eating, sleeping, procreation. What more could you want, thought Jones. Here was a swell place. A man could very well spend all his time eating and sleeping and procreating, Jones believed. He rather wished the rector or anyone who could imagine a world consisting solely of food and sleep and women had had the creating of things, and that he, Jones, could be forever thirty-one years of age. The rector, though, seemed to hold different opinions. What would they do to pass the time, asked Jones, for the sake of argument, wondering what the others would do to pass the time, what with eating and sleeping and fornication taken from them. Half of them would manufacture objects, and another portion would coin gold and silver with which to purchase these objects. Of course, there would be storage places for the coins and objects, thus providing employment for some of the people. Others naturally would have to till the soil. But how would you finally dispose of the coins and objects? After a while, you would have 
a single vast museum and a bank, both filled with useless and unnecessary things, and that is already the curse of our civilization, things, possessions, to which we're slaves, which require us to either labor honestly at least eight hours a day or do something illegal, so as to keep them painted or dressed in the latest mode or filled with whiskey or gasoline. Quite true, and this would remind us too sorely of the world as it is. Needless to say, I have provided for both of these contingencies. The coins might be reduced again to bullion and coined over, and the reverend man looked at Jones in ecstasy. The housewives could use the objects for fuel with which to cook food. Old fool, thought Jones, saying. Marvellous, magnificent. You're a man after my own heart, doctor. The rector regarded Jones kindly. Ah, boy, there's nothing after youth's own heart. Youth has no heart. But, doctor, this borders on Lay's majesty. I thought we had declared a truce regarding each other's cloth. Shadows moved as the sun moved. A branch dappled the rector's brow. A laureled drove. What is your cloth? Why, began Jones. It is a diaper still, dear boy. But forgive me, he added quickly, on seeing Jones' face. His arm was heavy and solid as an oak branch across Jones' shoulder. Tell me, what do you consider the most admirable of virtues? Jones was placated. Sincere arrogance, he returned promptly. The rector's great laugh boomed like bells in the sunlight, sent the sparrows like gusty leaves, whirling. Shall we be friends once more, then? Come, I'll make a concession. I will show you my flowers. You are young enough to appreciate them without feeling called upon to comment. The garden was worth seeing. An avenue of roses bordered a gravel path which passed from sunlight beneath two overarching oaks. Beyond the oaks, against a wall of poplars in a restless formal row, were columns of a Greek temple, yet the poplars themselves in slim, vague green were poised and vain as girls in a frieze. Against a privet hedge would soon be lilies like nuns in a cloister, and blue hyacinths swung soundless bells, dreaming of Lesbos. Upon a lattice wall wisteria would soon burn in slow inverted lilac flame, and following it they came lastly upon a single rose bush. The branches were huge and knotted with age, heavy and dark as a bronze pedestal, crowned with pale impermanent gold. The divine's hands lingered upon it with soft passion. Now this, he said, is my son and my daughter, the wife of my bosom and the bread of my belly. It is my right hand and my left hand. Many is the night I have stood beside it here after having moved the wrappings too soon, burning newspapers to keep the frost out. Once I recall I was in a neighboring town attending a conference. The weather, it was March, had been most auspicious and I had removed the covering. The tips were already swelling. Ah, my boy, no young man ever waited the coming of his mistress with more impatience than do I await the first bloom on this bush. Who was the old pagan who kept his Byzantine goblet at his bedside and slowly wore away the rim, kissing it? There's an analogy. But what was I saying? Ah, yes. So I left the bush uncovered against my better judgment and repaired to the conference. The weather continued perfect until the last day when the weather reports predicted a change. The bishop was to be present. I ascertained that I could not reach home by rail and return in time. At last I engaged a liveryman to drive me home. 
The sky was becoming overcast. It was already turning colder. And then three miles from home, we came upon a stream and found the bridge gone. After some shouting, we attracted the attention of a man plowing across the stream, and he came over to us in a skiff. I engaged my driver to await me, was ferried across, walked home, and covered my rose, walking back to the stream and returned in time. And that night, the rector beamed upon Janarius Jones. Snow fell. Jones flatly supine on gracious grass, his eyes closed against the sun, stuffing his pipe. This rose has almost made history. You have had the bush for some time, have you not? One does become attached to things one has long known. Janarius Jones was not particularly interested in flowers. I have a better reason than that. In this bush is imprisoned a part of my youth, as wine is imprisoned in a wine jar. But with this difference, my wine jar always renews itself. Oh, remarked Jones, despairing. There's a story here, then? Yes, dear boy, rather a long story, but you're not comfortable lying there. Whoever is completely comfortable, Jones rushed into the breach, unless he be asleep. It is the fatigue caused by man's inevitable contact with the earth which bears him, be he sitting, standing, or lying, which keeps his mind in a continual fret over futilities. If a man, if a single man, could be freed for a moment from the forces of gravity, concentrating his weight upon that point of his body which touches the earth, what would he not do? He would be a god, the lord of life, causing the high gods to tremble on their thrones. He would thunder at the very gates of infinity like a mailed knight. As it is, he must never have behind his mind a dull wonder how anything composed of fire and air and water and omnipotence in equal parts can be so damn hard. That is true. Man cannot remain in one position long enough to really think. But about the rose bush, Regard the buzzard, interrupted Jones with enthusiasm, fighting for time, supported by air alone. What dignity, what singleness of purpose, what cares he whether or not Smith is governor? What cares he that the sovereign people annually commission comparative strangers about whom nothing is known, save that they have no inclination towards perspiration, to meddle with impunity in the affairs of the sovereign people? But, my dear boy, this borders on anarchism. Anarchism? Surely, the hand of providence with money-changing blisters, that is anarchism. At least you admit the hand of providence. I don't know, do I? Jones, his hat over his eyes and his pipe projecting beneath, heaved a box of matches from his jacket. He extracted one and scraped it on the box. It failed and he threw it weakly into a clump of violets. He tried another. He tried another. Turn it around, murmured the rector. He did so, and the match flared. How do you find the hand of providence here? He puffed around his pipe stem. The rector gathered the dead matches from the clump of violets. In this way, it enables man to rise and till the soil so that he might eat. Would he, do you think, rise and labor if he could remain comfortably supine over long? Even that part of the body which the Creator designed for sitting on serves him only a short time, then it rebels. Then it, too, gets his sullen bones up and hails them along, and there's no help for him save in sleep. But he cannot sleep for more than a possible third of his time, Jones pointed out, and soon it will not even be a third of his time. The race is weakening, degenerating. We cannot stand nearly as much sleep as our comparatively recent, geologically speaking, of course, forefathers could, 
not even as much as our more primitive contemporaries can, for we, the self-styled civilized peoples, are now exercised over our minds and our arteries instead of our stomachs and sex, as were our progenitors and some of our uncompelled contemporaries. Uncompelled? Socially, of course. Doe believes that Doe and Smith should and must do this or that, because Smith believes that Smith and Doe should and must do this or that. Ah, yes. The divine again lifted his hand, unblinking eyes straight into the sun. Dew was off the grass, and Jonquils and Narcissi were beginning to look drowsy, like girls after a ball. It is drawing towards noon. Let us go in. I can offer you refreshment and lunch if you're not engaged. Jones rose. No, no, thank you a thousand times, but I shan't trouble you. The rector was hearty. No trouble, no trouble at all. I'm alone at present. Jones demurred. He had a passion for food and an instinct. He had only to pass a house for his instinct to inform him whether or not the food would be good. Jones did not, gastronomically speaking, react favorably to the rector. The divine, however, overrode him with hearty affability. The rector would not take no. He attached Jones to himself, and they trod their shadows across the lawn, herding them beneath the subdued grace of a fanlight of dim-colored glass, lovely with lack of washing. After the immaculate naked morning, the interior of the hall vortexed with red fire. Jones, temporarily blind, stumbled violently over an object, and the handle of a pail clasped his ankle passionately. The rector, bawling, Emmy! dragged him, pale and all, erect. He thanked his lucky stars that he had not been attached to the floor as he rose a sodden Venus, disengaging the pail. His dangling feet touched the floor, and he felt his trouser leg with despair, fretfully. He's like a derrick, he thought with exasperation. The rector bawled Emmy again. There was an alarmed response from the depths of the house, and one in gingham brushed them. The divine's great voice boomed like surf in the narrow confines, and opening a door upon a flood of light, he ushered the trickling Jones into his study. "'I shall not apologize,' the rector began, "'for the meagerness of the accommodation which I offer you. I'm alone at present, you see, but then we philosophers want bread for the belly and not for the palate, eh? Come in, come in.' Jones despaired, a drenched trouser leg and bread for the belly alone, and God only knew what this great lump of a divine meant by bread for the belly and no bread for the palate. Husks, probably. Regarding food, Jones was sybaritically rather than aesthetically inclined, or even philosophically. He stood disconsolate, swinging his dripping leg. My dear boy, you are soaking, exclaimed his host. Come off with your trousers. Jones protested weakly. Emmy, roared the director again. All right, Uncle Joe, soon as I get this water up. Never mind the water right now. Run to my room and fetch me a pair of trousers. But the rug'll be ruined. Not irreparably, I hope. We'll take the risk. Fetch me the trousers. Now, dear boy, off with them. Emmy will dry them in the kitchen, and then you'll be right as rain. Jones surrendered in dull despair. He had truly fallen among moral thieves. The rector assailed him with ruthless kindness, and the gingham-clad one reappeared at the door with a twin of the rector's casual black nether coverings over her arm. Emmy, this is Mr—I do not recall having heard your name. He will be with us at lunch, and Emmy, see if Cecily wishes to come also. 
This virgin shrieked at the spectacle of Jones, ludicrous in his shirt and his fat pink legs, and the trousers jerked solemn and lethargic into the room. Jones, supplied Janarius Jones faintly. Emmy, however, was gone. Ah, yes, Mr. Jones. The rector fell upon him anew, doing clumsy and intricate things with the waist and bottoms of the trousers, and Jones, decently if voluminously clad, stood like a sheep in a gale while the divine pawed him heavily. Now, cried his host, make yourself comfortable. Even Jones found irony in this, while I find something that will quench thirst. The guest regained his composure in a tidy, shabby room. Upon a rag rug, a desk bore a single white hyacinth in a handleless teacup. Above a mantel clattered with pipes and twists of paper hung a single photograph. There were books everywhere, on shelves, on window ledges, on the floor. Jones saw the Old Testament in Greek in several volumes, a depressing huge book on international law, Jane Austen and Les Contes Drolatiques in dog-eared amity, a mutual supporting caress. The rector re-entered with milk and a pitcher of blue glass and two mugs. From a drawer he extracted a bottle of scotch whisky. A sop to the powers, he said, leering at Jones with innocent depravity. Old dog and new tricks, my boy. But your pardon, perhaps you do not like this combination. Jones's morale rose balloon-like. I will try any drink once, he said, like Jorgen. Try it anyway. If you do not like it, you are at perfect liberty to employ your own formula. The beverage was more palatable than he would have thought. He sipped with relish. Didn't you mention a son, sir? That was Donald. He was shot down in Flanders last spring. The rector rose and took the photograph down from above the mantel. He handed it to his guest. The boy was about eighteen and coatless, beneath unruly hair. Jones saw a thin face with a delicate pointed chin and wild, soft eyes. Jones's eyes were clear and yellow, obscene and old in sin as a goat's. There's death in his face, said Jones. His host took the photograph and gazed at it. There's always death in the faces of the young in spirit, the eternally young. Death for themselves or for others, and dishonor, but death surely. And why not? Why should death desire only those things which life no longer has use for? Who gathers the withered rose? The rector dreamed darkly in space for a while. After a time, he added, a companion sent back a few of his things. He propped the photograph upright on the desk, and from a drawer he took a tin box. His great hand fumbled at the catch. Let me, sir, offered Jones, knowing that it was useless to volunteer, that the rector probably did this every day. But the lid yielded as he spoke, and the divine spread on the desk the sorry contents. A woman's chemise, a cheap paper-covered Shropshire lad, a mummied hyacinth bulb. The rector picked up the bulb, and it crumbled to dust in his hand. Tut, tut. How careless of me, he ejaculated, sweeping the dust carefully into an envelope. I have often deplored the size of my hands. They should have been given to someone who could use them for something other than thumbing books or grubbing in flower beds. Donald's hands, on the contrary, were quite small, like his mother's. He was quite deft with his hands. What a surgeon he would have made. He placed the things upon the desk before the propped photograph like a ritual, and propping his face in his earthy hands. He took his ruined dream of his son into himself as one inhales tobacco smoke. Truly, there is life and death and dishonor in his face. Had you noticed Emmy? 
years ago, about the time this picture was made. But that's an old story. Even Emmy has probably forgotten it. You'll notice that he has neither coat nor cravat. How often has he appeared after his mother had seen him decently arrayed on the street, in church, at formal gatherings, carrying hat, coat, and collar in his hands? How often have I heard him say, because it's too hot? Education in the bookish sense he had not. The schooling he got was because he wanted to go. The reading he did was because he wanted to read. Least of all did I teach him fortitude. What is fortitude? Emotional atrophy. Gangrene. He raised his face and looked at Jones. What do you think? Was I right, or should I have made my son conform to a type? Conform that face to a type? So Emmy has already been dishonored once anyway. How could you? I owe that dishonored one a grudge, too. Could you put a fawn into formal clothes? The rector sighed. Ah, Mr. Jones, who can say? He slowly replaced the things in the tin box and sat clasping the box between his hands. As I grow older, Mr. Jones, I become more firmly convinced that we learn scarcely anything as we go through this world, and that we learn nothing whatever, which can ever help us or be of any particular benefit to us, even. However, he sighed again, heavily. End of section 5 This recording is in the public domain.